Hey, what is going on everyone? It's me, Mr. Mario, and welcome back to another episode of Mod Chat. For anyone who does not know, this is a podcast I do here at least monthly in two different forms. First of all, it is available in a video visual form here on the Mr. Mario 2011 YouTube channel. Alternatively, it is also available in a audio only podcast form so you can take it around and listen to it wherever the hell you want to like an actual podcast. Simply look up Mod Chat, all one word, on your favorite podcasting app host or provider and you should be able to find it. I know it's not available on all of these sites and services but it's available on most of them. Either way Mod Chat as I said is a podcast here I do at least monthly in which I do a little bit of a wrap up or recap and kind of comment on things that I find interesting, cool, neat to see or things that I just want to kind of share with you all. Sometimes we do a little bit of show and tell in the world of video game console modding news and all that fun stuff. Now this is not necessarily Necessarily a news show. Uh, some people do treat it to get their news about video game console modding from, but overall I don't try to pose it as that. I'm more kind of just commenting and showing things here. Uh, either way, we do have some fun things that are in store for this episode here. Episode 101. We broke 100 episodes last episode, and thank you all for sticking around, listening, watching, all that fun stuff. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into this episode here this month. Now it's been a bit since I've covered firm updates on the switch but i guess we're getting kind of a two in one here and i thought this was a neat little thing here added into atmosphere so i figured i'd covered this real quick uh this is corresponding with the latest nintendo switch firmware update being 16.0.2 which was a pretty minor update which really got rid of adhd and I'm not joking about that. There is a block list of terms that you can and cannot use. Well, I guess block list, you cannot use these terms. And ADHD was added to that block list here. So I'm not kidding when I say that. But we also end up getting Atmosphere Custom Firmware 1.5.2. And it says here, I thought this was neat because it now adds, I guess, an official USB file transfer option. We have had other options here. Uh, however, it even says, you know, from Alex MCS. Uh, that we've had, you know, uh, Raj Costo's Memloader payload, uh, Hecate's implementation, Nut, uh, but now we have something else here, uh, which is Haze. And just covering this real quick, it says that, of course, we got official update 16.0.2, but Cyrez M quickly wheeled out a new version of Atmosphere Custom Firmware to match it, but this update features something more interesting than just stability to match Nintendo's. Atmosphere 1.5.2 adds in a new homebrew called Haze, which lets you perform USB file transfer, giving you access to your console's SD card on your computer without ever having to remove it. You can grab the latest version on GitHub linked here, and we're actually going to check it. As you can see here, this is 1.5.2, and it has this in the switch folder, which is the haze.nro file. And yeah, it just seems to be a homebrew application Haze was added for performing USB file transfer with thanks to Liam White for both design and implementation. Haze is included with Atmosphere and provides access to the SD card via the PTP MTP payload or protocol here. Please note Haze will show inside the homebrew menu under the name USB file transfer. So they make that pretty obvious there. And then, of course, general system stability improvements to enhance the user's experience. Uh, right here, if you know how to update the firmware, you already know what to do. You update the fuse.bin, and then you download the latest zip file here, and you merge everything in, and you should be good to go. 
So uh, something cool here for the Switch. I thought this is neat to see. Now this here, I'm going to admit I did miss the last time, but I wanted to make sure I covered it here. And we're actually going to be going back one system in the Nintendo library to the Wii U with Defuse. This here being a Wii U mod chip in development by Shiny Quagsire. So just reading this off here, they state this is from uh, Shadow One over on GBA Temp. The Wii U is truly the black sheep of main Nintendo consoles, but in terms of homebrew compatibility, it was but a diamond in the rough. While the Wii U is way past its heyday by almost a decade, gee, think about that, it's been a decade now, because this came out in, was it 2012? I think that sounds about right. Uh, the homebrew community still continues to thrive and develop great things for the system. One of these developers, Shiny Quagsire, has made some research and advancements towards creating a mod chip for the Wii U, which he titled Defuse. The mod chip started when Shiny Quagsire started looking at the then-unhacked Wii Mini console in an attempt to glitch Boot Zero on it, and while getting curious if it could work on Wii U, he found that a similar exploit could be attempted for it. With the only downsides being OTP dumps being impossible due to it being all zeros and the driver for Boot Zero being limited to SDHC cards. While the necessity of having a mod chip for the Wii U is not a must since Wii U already has cold boot exploits and many other things like Aroma that could serve a similar purpose. The main purpose of this mod chip is to allow booting a Wii U console straight from the SD card without having to rely on the Wii U's internal eMMC chip to boot into the console. This here, I'm just going to interject, is pretty important just because I touched up on this last episode, uh, but there have been a lot of, I guess, discoveries, advancements, which in short, just covering it here, uh, a lot of eMMC, like the NAND modules on board the Wii U's, have been dying. So what people have been doing is they've been researching this, and I know we've seen several opportunities here, such as I know Voltar has been working on, and hopefully releasing here soon, if it not released already, the uh, NAND aid solution, which is a board which you're able to wire up to the Wii U itself, uh, just pretty much wire it in line with the NAND chip on board there, and then you can really the NAND off of the SD card and you can even you know read it and rewrite it and all that fun stuff uh, so it, this is really kind of sped up a whole lot of things here just these premature deaths of Wii U's and we're seeing things like defuse here for example which is something all new which should hopefully help out here uh, just to save Wii U's that are dead or dying <laughs> uh, either way though they say here uh, this is due to the recent news about some Wii U consoles breaking entirely due to failures in the EMMC chip exactly what I talked about so giving players the option to boot from SD card would be a relief due to this delicate issue that plagues the console the rest of the information is highly technical and dives into the eFuse's OTP boot 0 boot 1 and SRAM of the console so those interested in a more in-depth and detailed information regarding the process can read it in shiny quagsire's own article about defuse on his webpage the mod chip is currently in early stages of development and it currently requires an FPG of sorts, but it hasn't been standardized in terms of schematics or parts. However, Shiny Quagsire is trying to aim for a $25 to $35 range when it's finished or lower based on the RP2040 chip. That chip is just so magical. <laughs> uh, those interested and willing to collaborate and help out throughout its development can do so through Shiny Quagsire's GitHub repository for the mod chip, where he keeps all the coding and research for it open source. And we're actually going to take a look at that here. Um, let's just go to it already. Here we go. So we have the Wii U mod chip GitHub page here, and just covering this, a work in progress Wii U mod chip based on defuse, a flaw in the Wii U's OTP eFuse readout state machine. 
how does it work? A full write-up is available here, however the short version which we'll go through here is as follows. In order to accommodate eFuse-based JTAG lockout and due to other considerations, eFuse bits must be buffered into a register file immediately following NRST before the internal reset can be released. The eFuse Sense state machine latches at a rate of 4 bits per cycle directly off the 27 MHz Extal clock. Every other rising edge, a byte is written into the register file, starting from the least significant byte to the current U32. An internal counter is used to keep track of the remaining bytes to be read into the register file. While the eFuse register file is reset to zero with NRST, the internal counter is not. By asserting NRST after N bytes have been read, only 0x400 N bytes will be read on the subsequent boot. By asserting NRST just before the final byte has been read, here being 800, well, about uh, 1800 cycles, all E-fuses will read entirely zero, including the JTAG logout fuse. This allows trivial, unsigned, and unencrypted boot one execution with no CPROM anti-rollback. Uh, there's been some releases as well too here, and we can take a look at them real quick. Uh, currently, as I'm looking at this, we have 0.2 that's released. The first one here was 0.1, of course, being the uh, is this thing on edition. And here they state this is an initial release for early adopters who want to know if their Raspberry Pi Pico is wired correctly for defuse. A lot of stuff currently is not implemented and or needs improvement. However, what is provided is enough to verify the Pico is installed correctly. And for Raspberry Pi Pico wiring instructions, click here, which we are going to check this out. So here we're on uh, Pico defuse, and this is cool. It is based on Pico boot. So there's no, uh, you know, fancy photos here, unfortunately, but it does have uh, all of the GP, like all the GPIO points here, where you're supposed to solder them to on the test points for the Wii U and the description of every single one. However, one thing that's interesting to me is they say that they highly suggest using 38 gauge enameled magnet wire, not solid core or stranded. Some of the test points are close to the GPU voltage rails, which are high amperage. A poor solder joint breaking off and touching something else can be catastrophic. The best location to mount the Pico is still an open question. For my main Wii U, I'm currently planning on placing Captain Tape over the Nintendo logo on the top side of the PCB, wrapping my Pico in Captain Tape, and then adhering the Pico to the Captain Tape with double-sided foam. So, interesting to see here. Okay, uh, I, I'm just, there's, for anybody thinking this is going to be like the easy way out or something, this will definitely not be it. This is awesome work for sure, uh, but this is going to be several points that you'll have to solder to on the Wii U, and on top of that, this is incredibly small wire. I mean, even for reference with people who have been modifying the Switch with putting chips in there, they recommend 36 gauge wire. And this is even smaller than that. This is 38 gauge wire. So uh, this is not going to be for the faint of heart. I can say that. However, going back to the defuse releases here, uh, they are stating for the required files, uh, I guess in a zip, you would need the boot one image, a firmware.image, which is the main bootloader, uh, ios.patch, and the otp.bin. And then for the steps here, you would flash the firmware over to the Raspberry Pi Pico, and then you'd flash the boot one image to one gigabyte or two gigabyte SD card. SD cards provided for a 3DS should work fine. It has to be non-SDHC, and uh, this also does include a MBR header, so you may have to format the FAT32 partition after flashing in order to continue. Then you copy the firmware 
iOS patch and OTP to the root of the SD card. Then you power on the Wii U, and if it is working correctly, the power LED will flash and turn purple. So, indeed, this is just verifying, is this thing on? I think that's pretty aptly stated there. Uh, looking at the latest release, however, they're asking what's new, and in here it says there's a hotfix, so fixed OTP not dumping without OTP.bin on the card, OTP dumping via backup and restore, and then dump OTP via PRS hacks, uh, slc.raw and slc mpt.raw restoring, faster, more reliable serial console input, and a serial firmware image chain loader for the minute minute dev. Uh, so this is still same thing here. Uh, it's not going to be anything really usable to end users, uh, but if you're wanting to tinker around with this, make sure this works and, you know, verify your work on here. Uh, this is still working so far. This is early stages. And if we can have this all working on a Raspberry Pi Pico, that would be awesome. So you all know that I love to highlight some of these projects when I do see them here. And as you can see here, this here, I didn't even know about this, but this is from the Paper Mario reverse engineering team. And this is a reverse engineering and decompilation effort of Paper Mario, like the original one on N64. And keeping it short and sweet, as you can see here, this is a work in progress decompilation of Paper Mario. It builds the following ROMs. And the big thing here is that the US retail ROM has reached 100% completion. Uh, with the Japanese ROM here being the least worked on at this point, PAL being over halfway done, and then the IQ version being about 15%. Uh, so this is cool to see so far. They even have their own website, which we can check out. And looking at this here, we have reached 100% on the US release. Paper Mario is the third N64 exclusive game to be fully decompiled after Super Mario 64 and Ocarina of Time. The team is immensely grateful to all contributors and supporters. Thank you. We can dismiss this here. And they have an awesome website here. So again, Paper Mario is an ongoing project to reverse engineer the source code for Paper Mario on the N64. The game's assembly code is manually decompiled into C source code. The project also extracts game assets such as background, sprites, maps, and text from an original copy into more modern formats. The C code and assets can then be recompiled to create a one-to-one -one matching copy of the game. And this is all to state here. If you're asking why this is done, some of the reasons they give are to preserve the game, learning how the game was engineered, helping speedrunners and glitch hunters understand why bugs occur, making engine mods easier to create, and enjoying decompilation in and of itself. However, I guess there's, uh, you know, people immediately think of mods and ports here, so they even ask PC port. There's still work to be done that before work can be started on a PC port. The primary blocker is that some assets are still packaged as raw binary data, rather than being properly extracted and rebuilt. Now that we've re reached 100% for the US version of the game, we will be focusing on support for the remaining assets. And someone even asked, well, I guess they kind of have this on here, you know, asking about mods. They are supported, however, we're still working out issues with modding support, so please bear with us. Although the main repo is suitable for modding, Alex has started a fork of the main decomp repo, Paper Mario DX, which aims to provide a more convenient base for creating mods. And even checking this out here, uh, well, it looks like this has been archived at least. Let's see. Use of this repository is deprecated in favor of Merlin. If you want to write decomp mods, use Merlin. So let's check this out here. 
I guess this is it. Yeah, Merlin is a mod manager for the Paper Mario N64 decomp. It creates patches that apply to source code rather than binary files. So this is cool to see. Uh, we we might have a, uh, a whole new resurgence of love for Paper Mario, which is awesome. I did want to give a bit of love for PS3 Hint here because we did see an update for it in the form of 3.2.2, which we can go ahead and just check the change logs for this because there's actually a lot here. So the folks ended up adding support for 4.80 and 4.81 retail firmware support. They added 4.82 debug firmware support. Uh, automatic updates are now disabled by default. So that is important just because uh, we've had some mishaps with that before. Just in short, they were like... I guess, quote unquote, fake updates that were going out when the uh, when the domain name ended up changing. So we have some more control over that, which is nice. Uh, however, with some of the HIN plugin changes, there's been added support for RCO sounds and LED statuses, uh, updated the install finish detection method, updated and cleaned up the download package thread to function, and added detection of dev build toggle for USB 0, USB 1. Some payload changes also include the pad function to not hang when more one device is connected. Uh, that was apparently an issue there. If you hooked up multiple controllers when activating HIN, it would freeze up. Disabled VSH attached debuggers default to not conflict with some custom firmwares. Uh, multiple updates to the PSP launcher blacklisting and more. Added L2 to disable map path remap on HIN launch. And some resource changes here, including uninstall HIN added uh, disable mapping on next reboot, added a toggle hotkey polling. Uh, this here, I didn't know too much about. This will enable disable check combo buttons function when HIN launches. Uh, so I guess if you're like holding down one of the buttons there, uh, enable quick preview option on the XMB and added a toggle app home support. Uh, so we can even check out some of that here. I have updated my PS3 to the latest PS3 HIN and even just going to the hybrid firmware tools, you see mainly some of that here in like maintenance for example so here you're able to toggle your automatic updates on and off as shown so that way it's enabled this way it is disabled if you want to show app home you can totally do that uh, clearing the web cache, I believe that was there before. Uh, however, on here, the uninstall HIN option, I've used this several times just for testing. It's worked great for me. Even in the development options here, yep, we see this uh, enable quick preview option on the XMB. So you just get a few other options here which seem to help out the PS3 HIN experience. So always awesome to see updates like this. Now, in terms of all things PlayStation, we're going to be going back to the PlayStation 1 with a device called the Sio. Now, for anybody who does not know, this is from the company Cybdyne, and this was the... I believe this was the first optical drive emulator for the original PlayStation. Uh, now, I'm actually one who owns the Sio. I bought one several years ago. I installed it, and it's worked for the most part. I haven't run into too many issues with it. However, to say it's, you know, the best thing out there is kind of a lie there. Uh, there's a few optical drive emulator options for the PlayStation on the market now at this point. Uh, there's the Sio. There is the X-Station, which is honestly the best. Uh, there is the mode, which I've heard that one is okay. They kind of shoot in PlayStation support. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that. And then lastly, there is the Pico Station. Uh, with the Pico Station, the big benefit there is that it is open source. However, it is 
very early in development right now, so it's not going to be the most stable thing, and there's not really too much that works on there at this time. So if you're wanting really the best thing out there, the X Station is the best. However, the one thing the Sayo has on all the other devices, which the other devices, of course, don't have, is that the Sayo allows you to retain the optical drive in there. So therefore, what I do like about the Sayo is that you're not removing any functionality from the PlayStation. You're only adding functionality. You're allowing it because it goes through the parallel port on the back of the system. So therefore, you're able to load up games from a SD card. Uh, however, here, uh, it was announced, uh, this is on Twitter, I believe, last month, uh, but it was announced that the latest firmware for the Sayo ended up getting cracked. And we have this here from uh, Owned on GitHub, which is kind of just covering all of this here. Now we're just going to go over a few bits of it, but they're saying here that the Sayo is owned. The repository contains code and information about reverse engineering Cybdyne's Sayo. This work is not affiliated with Cybdyne and is done for educational purposes only. It contains no copyrighted material. Work was done by two people using clone of Sayo from AliExpress and Sayo firmware 2.6.28 from Cybdyne's website. Thanks to GitHub Copilot for help writing the document. Now, the Sayo software is three parts, the PSX menu, and that is the main menu that is displayed when the PlayStation is powered on with Sayo connected, the MCU firmware, this is the firmware that runs on the Sayo's microcontroller, and the FPGA firmware, the firmware that runs on Sayo's FPGA. PSX menu was hacked by other people and is not covered here. The menu hack from others lets you flash Chinese Sayo clones. We go further than that and reverse engineer the MCU firmware. It is possible to combine both hacks and run a modified HERP firmware on the Sayo. No official update for two years, no response to emails, Sayo is dead. Time to hack it and make it better with custom firmware. So they go into some good details here covering the PSX menu here. Just how all of this works. Uh, they also cover, you know, some information about the FPGA firmware and the SPI flash, the MCU firmware itself. But scrolling down even further, this is kind of where I wanted to get into it and uh, really kind of contribute my own bit here. So for future work, Sayo is now completely open. Menu isn't very protected and firmware is decrypted. We can reverse engineer everything and create custom firmware for Sayo. We will work on it next here, so stay tuned. People ask questions. Yes, all is open source. And they do have a uh, link, I guess not link, but an address here if you do want to donate to them. So I guess my thoughts on this overall, because this is, uh, I guess, a bit of an oddity here. Uh, the Sayo is a product that is, I guess, a bit controversial, uh, not because of its nature, but more because of the ownership with it. Uh, from what I understand, the ownership really locks it down, like even to the point, uh, you know, first of all, for a while, it was really slow actually getting a Sayo. And then when you did get one, you had to go to the official website, you had to tie the only way you could download the firmware was you had to tie it to your serial number which you would really only get through like a proof of purchase on there so therefore if you ever ended up just let's say installing a sio on your playstation and then you sold it off unless you gave the person you were selling it to the information tied to it they really wouldn't be able to get firmware updates uh, this is unlike many other devices where you just go out you download the firmware for this and then you can copy it over on top of that with the sio booting it 
up is slow. Uh, playing games on there, you do have to do some tweaks. You do have to do some modifications. I know the compatibility has been questioned as well, too. It's not like something that's drag and drop and you're done, kind of like the X station. Uh, and also the compatibility on X station is going to be better than this. So this is all to say here, first of all, the Sayo has been cloned. There's been clones of it on AliExpress for a few years. That's going to happen with many products. Uh, now the firmware is being reverse engineered. If this is just being picked apart and reverse engineered for, you know, educational purposes and really put up on here, that's going to happen anyways. However, if we are going to see some efforts to make a custom firmware on here and really make this better and improve the SIO, I will say as someone who has paid money for the SIO, who has installed it, who uses it, I have one of these in my game room. I'm all for this. If it can give me more use out of my product and improve it, I'm all for this here. Now you all probably know I have a, a little bit of an affinity for the Xbox 360 and the modding scene on there, and this here is from Professor Johnny, which is a project called Open Demon. And here, this is the Open Demon project. Just a bit of an overview here. Uh, this is an in-progress open source recreation of the project uh, of Team Executor Dual NAND device. It is the most powerful multifunction NAND device created for the Xbox 360. Hopefully, by starting this project, we may get more on board in recreating the firmware and fixing a few bugs and possible add-on companion hardware devices. And yeah, this is a cool thing here to see. For anyone who does not know, it, this was not the first one, but this was the first, I would say, big uh dual NAND device for the Xbox 360 with it being the Demon. Um, it was from Team Executor and it was a, a bit of a hefty install, but the cool thing was it also had some boards on there which you can reflash both NANDs, like your retail NAND and your dual NAND, you can reflash them using a mini USB. Unfortunately, I will say uh, I have a couple consoles that have been modified with the Demon. And that functionality was just always so spotty. I'm talking you would fight with that, that USB device and the drivers. You'd fight with it for about an hour uh, just to take 20 seconds to reflash your NAND. So at that point, really, I, I just gave up on it after, you know, a few months of fighting with it initially. So now when I need to update my NANDs on those systems, I just do it the standard way. I don't use the USB port, but it looks cool. I will say that it looks pretty neat. So here we'll actually get into this. The Demon background. The Demon was first released in February 2012 in conjunction with an updated JRunner that included features to control and flash the Demon for an all-in-one solution for programming. It was revolutionary at the time and sold well during the initial stages, but possibly overhyped and did not actually sell that well compared to other Team Executor devices. That would actually make sense because February 2012, you got to realize that was about a year and a half before the Xbox One was coming out. Uh, so that was pretty late into the life cycle. But here, with the advent of stealth services, its semi became redundant because its true potential was cut short from lack of continuation and release of add-on hardware that was promised but never arrived. Many add-on projects were planned but never made it outside of the Team Executor dev team. Sadly, financial and legal issues were plagued by K3, owner of Team Executor at the time, after his move from UK, eventually leading to the sale of Team Executor to Max. The Demon has access to the UART of the console that could interact with the console, along with plenty of additional board onboard I.O., enough to run complete separate 8-bit bus and a few spare I.O. that could be bit-banged to create SPI I2C or for any other potential use. 
On July 11, 2012, Team Executor announces an Android and iOS app to remotely control the Executor uh, daemon over Bluetooth or Wi-Fi. But sadly, this never made it. LCD support was also investigated, and a few prototypes were made and distributed between the Team X devs to play with, but sadly, only Switch. The NAND switching plugin made it to the platform. Man, I didn't know about all this. I wasn't following it like that close at the time, but I didn't know about all of that. The project background here. After discussing the project with fellow enthusiasts and reading the details of the long-winded process of breaking the Xbox 360 ODE device recently, uh, yeah, that was a thing real quick. There was some uh, optical drive emulator devices that were, I guess, cracked open, like the firmware was cracked open, you can say there, uh, device recently, and being given some insight to the hardware, I went to work recreating schematics. I was also given pictures of a pre-release slim PCB unpopulated to cross-check my schematics with a bit of help. The schematic and hardware information gives us a bit of insight into how the device operates and talks to the flash controller, and knowing the hardware and its components and its design is a big step in the correct direction to be able to reverse engineer. One thing that was never released was how to control the hardware and I.O. on the daemon from the console. I would like to document how the I.O. on the hardware is addressed if it made it that far, and if there is some sort of API to control it over UART, is there a API for PC-based USB control? Third-party add-ons could be released and give applications access to the I.O. on the device. What would be better than having an LCD on the front of your 360? That's going to, like, see, this is the thing. I know with the 360, uh, the idea was, for years, people wanted it to get to, like, the greatness and what we think of and even still see of the OG Xbox scene. Just, like, the ingenuity that was behind so much of the uh, accessories and such. But it never got to that. We didn't have, you know, crazy LCDs sticking out of the 360. That just never happened. Now, I'm not going to get into everything on here, but, you know, he's talking about his theory of the operations, some of the caveats on this, and uh, as well as a project outline and future plans, which we'll go ahead and go over here. Uh, the future plan is to recreate the daemon open source from the ground up with compatibility of the existing device in the short term, with a hardware revision likely required as the main micro and NAND while available online is discontinued by the manufacturers. But the real motivation behind this project is to create completely a new device using FPGA in conjunction with a microcontroller. With this, we could also attach RAM or use embedded SRAM in the FPGA to on-the-fly build NAND images and patch the kernel at boot time with small configuration app on the console. Are, are you serious? With a small, yeah, configuration app on the console. That would be cool. Uh, this FPGA micro could also give us a shared memory window attached in the NAND address space for console microcontroller communication. From there, we could offload segments of RAM, relocate code, co-processing, etc. From testing by Eaton, the NAND bus operates at around 1.4 megabits per second, not flash by any means, but will be suitable for low bandwidth peripherals and information. It is unknown if removing NAND chip timing by hosting it in faster media will increase this. At the moment, this is a pipe dream, but it is in the realms of possibility if we can get devs motivated and on board. If you have experience in CPLD or FPGA design and programming and be willing to lend a hand, great. I'm by no means a skilled dev, just a tinkerer and Xbox enthusiast by many. More on that on the Eaton blog here. 
Uh, oh, and this is just linking to, I can see the link on my screen, but uh, yeah, how Microsoft attempted to make the 360 dashboard load faster. I, I do remember that. We do we did cover that here a few episodes ago. Uh, I've used Eagle for the schematic design, which you can download a free version here. Project is free and open source. Uh, and if you like my work, please consider a small donation to XBMC for Xbox, Team Resurgent, or one of the many great Xbox resources out there. You may also be able to send me clones of this project or buckets of cash or whatever. <laughs> Uh, this project is by no means complete or possibly accurate. So this is all cool to see here. And uh, I do have, like I said, I've got a couple of Demon install consoles. I have a fat and I have a slim. So honestly, this is one of those things. If, if it can be started by just doing modifications to the existing hardware itself, that would be awesome. Like, I would love to give this a spin and see what comes of it here. Uh, is there any other pictures on this? Let's see. We have, okay, this is what we see on the Demon. That's a fat PCB slim proto. Oh, this is the prototype design. Okay, this is the unpopulated one. And this is what it looked like, the one that you actually installed in the console itself. And then the proto bottom. All right, that looks real cool. Awesome to see. Now, finally, with these episodes, I like to wrap them up with something funny, interesting, cool, just something that is maybe related or indirectly related or something I just find neat and funny in regards to, I guess, the community here. It could be modding. It could be gaming overall. Uh, this here, I, I just... I haven't played these games, the Advance Wars games, right? Uh, but I've heard very good things about them. One of my best friends, he absolutely loves them. And the Reboot Camp, which is a... I guess, yeah, remake, you can say. It's a remake of Advance Wars 1 and 2 on the Switch, finally ended up releasing. Uh, some of the controversy with this was actually, well, it was, you know, shrouded in controversy with war. Uh, it was about a year ago, that's when the war in Ukraine was going on, and out of respect for that, Nintendo decided to uh, put this game's release on hold. Uh, that was a little controversial, like it was understandable, but it was just one of those situations where the game was actually completed and ready to release, and it just did not come out. So we didn't know a release date, but it, if you're listening to this now, the game is out at this point. However, this ended up being picked up here by Vooks, which I have not heard of this site before, but they're saying here that the reboot camp was delayed so long that you can't redeem its gold coins. And if, you, if you've redeemed gold coins or if you don't know about the gold coins on the Switch, I'm about to put you on here, right? So getting into this, now the original story, because this is fixed, spoiler alert, but it says when you buy a game physically for the Switch and digitally as well, but they're done automatically, you can redeem some gold coins for my Nintendo. It's only 1% of the eShop game price, but it all it adds up eventually. Advance Wars 1 and 2 Reboot Camp was released today after a series of delays. Delay, uh, well, today being April 21st. Uh, the first being for more development time, and the second because of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Normally, you have one calendar year from the game's release to redeem these coins. Since a year has passed since Advance Wars was meant to be out, it looks like this hasn't been updated on Nintendo's end, and users picking up the game today can't redeem the coins. So this was happening here. Like, literally, you get this brand new game, and you can't redeem the coins for it. Although, it looks like it was fixed, which I didn't know about that. They did update it here, and they said, it looks like this has now been fixed with multiple reports of it working locally. UK users have reported it working to us, but they have a two-year window to redeem the coins. Enjoy the gold coins. So, there you go. 
I, I just thought this was a, a little funny thing here, kind of just wrapping this all up overall. Well, that is about it for this episode of Mod Chat. We're going to go ahead and wrap it up here. As you can see, Lily is, uh, well, she was tired, but she's uh, pretty happy and smiling. Lily, are you are you really that happy that Mod Chat is this episode's over? I guess she is. She doesn't even want to look at me at this point. She's kind of just like looking over to the side now. Either way, that is about it for this episode of Mod Chat. I hope you all enjoyed listening, watching, consuming it, and I hope you all come out for the next episode here. If you did enjoy this episode, a like would absolutely be appreciated. If you didn't like it, a dislike is fine as well too. But what I also like to do is at the end of these episodes, I like to pick a keyword or a key phrase. And if you use this keyword or key phrase on a comment on the YouTube upload, I'll know that you've made it to the end. Uh, now, I, I'm gonna use this word because I had just finished recording another video and uh, it's gonna be directly related to that video here. Not necessarily mod chat, but this keyword here. Uh, and it'll be a little bit of a hint for the next video. Can't really show it here, but uh, well, video I just worked on. I don't know when exactly it's coming out. Uh, let's just use the keyword case. Do you like briefcases? Do you carry around a case with you for your consoles if you bring your consoles all over the place? Do you use a case on your phone or do you just use your phone naked? That, in my opinion, is actually a dangerous game right there. I always keep a case on my phone. The one, the primary phone that I am using, mind you. Uh, either way, let's use that. If you use the word case in a comment on the YouTube upload of this episode, I'll know that you've made it to the end of this episode of Mod Chat. Anyways, that is about it here. Thank you all very much for listening, watching, checking this out, hanging out, all that fun stuff. As I said before, this is Mr. Mario signing off. Thank you all for watching, everyone. If you liked it, like. If you disliked it, dislike. But if you do that, probably going to make that one kind of sad. Just so you know. <laughs>